I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 9th, 2014. Coming up, 50 years after the Wilderness Act was signed into law, we discuss with conservation scientist Dr. M. Sanjayan, what is wilderness today? And do humans really need nature to thrive? And aquanaut Fabien Cousteau talks with us about the state of the oceans and his recent Mission 31, the longest underwater expedition, which honors his grandfather, Jacques-Yves Cousteau, 50 years after his first deep-sea living experiment. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Move over, T-Rex. Super Dino is here. Scientists have unearthed the remains of a new massive dinosaur in Argentina. They believe it weighed as much as a dozen African elephants or more than seven T-Rex dinosaurs. The researchers first discovered bits of dinosaur bones in 2005 at a site in southern Patagonia. Over the next five years, they excavated a remarkably complete skeleton, including nearly 70% of the dino's bones. They've identified its species as Dreadnoughtus shrani, one of a group of large plant eaters known as titanosaurs. Even though the researchers' analysis determined that the creature weighed a whopping 65 tons when it died, they don't believe it was fully grown. Because all previously discovered supermassive dinosaurs are known only from relatively fragmentary remains, the discovery offers an unprecedented window into the anatomy and biomechanics of the largest animals to ever walk the Earth. A description of the research was published last week in the journal Scientific Reports. There's been a lot of hand-wringing over the years, decades actually, about the relative benefits of breastfeeding or formula. But here's some hard data. Infant rhesus macaque monkeys that were breastfed and bottle-fed developed very different immune systems, and the differences persisted for six months until they were weaned and started eating solid food. The research, done mainly in the Primate Center at the University of California at Davis, looked for signs of a healthy immune system in the infant monkey's gut, bacteria, and blood. The breastfed monkeys had a big advantage, as they developed several types of long-lived immune system cells that are used for killing pathogens and remembering those pathogens. Conversely, the bottle-fed infants failed to develop these cells. There were also differences in intestinal bacteria that seemed to favor breastfeeding. These findings may help to explain why some children show different responses to immune system diseases, as well as variability in their protection from some infectious diseases. The research was published last week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. You may have heard some news last week about Rosetta, the robotic spacecraft that's tagging along with comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko. The probe sent back the first set of pictures from its ultraviolet camera, meant to show evidence of water ice on the comet's surface, but there wasn't any. And that's surprising, because comets are supposed to be made primarily of ice and rock. So what gives? Well, luckily, our executive producer, Joel Parker, is one of the scientists in charge of Rosetta's UV camera. He's been traveling for work, but found time to send me an email, and Joel says he's actually not that surprised the ice is nowhere to be seen. For one thing, previous trips around the sun might have boiled away much of the comet's surface ice. There could be plenty more on the inside. Or the comet could be coated in a fresh layer of space dust. Rosetta is still about 100 kilometers away from the comet, so Joel says, At this range, the photos only tell us that there are no large, exposed patches of ice. As Rosetta gets closer, smaller ice patches may reveal themselves, 
and the spacecraft has other instruments that will help build up a complete picture of the comet's composition. Stay tuned for more updates as Rosetta's mission continues. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU News Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Fifty years ago last week, President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Wilderness Act. It was then, and remains today, one of the most significant pieces of environmental legislation. It protected millions of acres of land, and it established a legal definition of wilderness as this, an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor and does not remain. So fast forward 50 years, and many are questioning whether conservation efforts should be made to try to return nature to a so-called native or untrammeled state when we've altered just about every square inch of land anyway. To discuss these issues at this pivotal time, we have on the phone Dr. M. Sanjayan. He's a senior scientist at Conservation International. As a science communicator, he's focused on the role of conservation in improving human well-being, wildlife, and the environment. You may have seen him as a correspondent on the Emmy Award-winning Showtime series on climate change called Years of Living Dangerously. And now he's finishing up working on a new TV series called Earth, A New Wild. It'll air on PBS next February. And you can catch him this Friday in Boulder. He'll be speaking at the America's Latino Eco Festival. Dr. Sanjayan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. So why don't we start with that? Uh, famous line from the Wilderness Act itself. I mean, is it dated? Is it naive right now, this phrase, untrammeled by human beings? There's something very poetic about it, and I think in the time that it was conceived, it made a great deal of sense. Um, We were entering an era where we thought very quickly nature would be gone, and it was important to preserve or have legislation that would allow us to preserve these extraordinary places that had been so important in the creation, really in the creation of the American myth, uh, what, what it is, what it means to be an American, particularly out west. So I love it. I mean, I love those words. I love what it had tried to do. And it's been extraordinary in terms of its achievements, right? So we've got 110 million acres plus. Right. It started with, what, 9 million? Yep. Yeah, and I live, literally live on the edge of one of the big ones, the Bob Marshall Wilderness in, in Montana. Mm. But I'm not sure that construct is really useful going forward, particularly when you look at wilderness around the world. So over the last couple of years, I took this extraordinary journey, went to about 29 countries around the world, to some of the biggest what you would expect to be untrammeled wildernesses around the planet, from the Arctic to the Amazon, you know, to the deserts of Uzbekistan. And guess what? Every place I went, I found humans. So nothing is untrammeled. So, so then what? What does it mean in terms of what should we really put the conservation dollars towards preserving, or is there some sort of get-over-it <laughs> attitude? No, you know, it, <laughs> Maybe a little bit of get over it, but here's the thing. There's definite importance in minimizing human damage, human impacts, long-term human impacts on, on these extraordinary places that have somehow managed to survive into the modern era. They contain plants and animals and wonderful things that are important for our heritage. 
if you frame the conservation movement or the environment movement as us versus nature, mm. as humans as the bad guys and nature as the pristine, wondrous thing that's outside, as nature is sort of a Sistine Chapel-like cathedral dripping with life where we are only supposed to stand and gaze in awe, you will never be able to reach the millions or billions of people we really need to be part of this movement in order to make this happen. As long as nature is outside my window, far away out there on that mountain as I'm speaking to you right now, it will remain distant to me. I will find myself separate from nature. And the reality is, in every one of my journeys that I went to, even into the heart of the Amazon, I find that people really are part of nature. And they're still intricately linked to nature. And when you realize that, here's the great thing. You realize that then saving nature really is about saving ourselves. So I'm curious, that's a, that's a huge point, but on your journey, were there times where you yourself were really disappointed or was this such a, a mind-opening experience for you too? I, you know, that, that's exactly right. So I expected that I would have the most amazing times in these places that were so far, so removed from people. I went into this one area of the Ecuadorian Amazon called the intangible zone. It, you know, it's sort of off limits even by the government. Um, you know, really, it's supposed to be the most biodiverse spot on Earth. National Geographic put it in their covers and called it the wildest place on Earth. There were people there. And the human stories of how people survived there and their links to nature was actually the most riveting stories that I found I could tell. So it turned out that here we were trying to make this incredible wildlife documentary in these amazing places, and we ended up actually telling a very human story. And I think the stories are more powerful because of that. Yeah, and in a way it sounds more powerful and I wonder if is it a matter even within an environmental so-called environmental movement to sort of rephrase the rhetoric where it's really about saving ourselves as much as saving this untouched landscape out there I mean how does that do you think that's the case and how does that really translate well for me that's the case although I I fully acknowledge and I and I you know in my heart I very much support people who want to preserve things for their own intrinsic right um, I have friends in that movement, but for me, this is the case. The case is I cannot convince more people than I have already just by the power of nature to inspire alone. Um, I really now have to find links between how nature, you know, at the end of the day, nature in some ways will survive with or without us. It's we who are in peril. And when we realize that, then I can bring lots more people to that movement. If you go on the streets today, in, in any city really around the world, and ask some, a kid, you know, ask a person, you know, where does water come from? And you'll get the answer, the tap. Where does food come from? You'll get the answer, the supermarket. We really think in our modern world, where more of us live in cities than ever before, that we are really disconnected from nature, that nature is something that we get to taken care of once we've dealt with all our basic needs, like food and security and water and uh, livelihoods. And guess what? It's not really the case. And when we turn our backs on nature, and, and our, our film, Earth, the New Wild, really shows this, it comes back to bite you in this most unexpected and, and sometimes frightening way. And we've just got another minute or so, but give us a little taste of this um, new campaign with Conservation International that you're launching called Nature is Speaking. Sure. Because it seems to speak just to Yeah, that. I'm really excited about it because it's a bit subversive. It's very edgy. Uh -huh. It's something very different for sort of a big environmental group, particularly like us, to embrace.
So we have many celebrities who have sort of pitched in to help us with this. Harrison Ford got us going, but Edward Norton and Penelope Cruz and, and uh, Robert Redford, uh, Kevin Spacey, several others. And we have these very powerful short videos that remind people why we need nature to thrive. So you'll have um, Penelope Cruz, for example, talking about why we need water. Um, far more than water needs us. Or Edward Norton as the soil is just very powerful, just sort of reminding us that everything we eat, everything we get, um, everything we put in our mouths really comes ultimately from the soil. So it's this sort of, uh, it's called Nature Speaking, and it will be uh, essentially revealed this October at the South by Southwest Eco Festival. I will show a sneak preview at the, um, at the Latino Eco Fest this, this week in Boulder on Friday. Right, that's Friday that's at 4 o'clock at the Dairy Center for those listening out there. Well, thank you so much. Hopefully many can catch you this Friday. That was Dr. M. Sanjayan, Senior Scientist at Conservation International. So we'll give this presentation Friday at 4 at the Dairy Center, and it's part of America's Latino Eco Festival. You can just Google that and you'll find it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Susan. You're hopefully still tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. For this next segment, we continue with our series called The Ocean is Us. It explores how we in landlocked Colorado are connected, in fact, to the ocean and what's at stake. Today, we explore the health and illness of the ocean and its creatures with someone whose family name goes pretty much hand-in-hand with ocean. Our guest is Fabien Cousteau. He's the grandson of Jacques-Yves Cousteau, the late oceanographic explorer, who opened a window into ocean for millions of us back in the 1960s through his pioneering scuba diving adventures. In fact, he circled the world 15 times in his ship called the Calypso. John Denver wrote a song about it. Fabien has been carrying out his father's legacy, grandfather's legacy rather, as an aquanaut, oceanographic explorer, conservationist, and documentary filmmaker. Along with his father, Jean-Michel and sister Céline, Fabien produced the Ocean Adventures series for PBS. He's also produced several other ocean exploration documentaries for TV. Most recently, to honor the 50th anniversary of his grandfather's first underwater living experiment, called Conshelf 2, Fabien's crew in June spent 31 days underwater, one day longer than Jacques' mission. Fabien's science expedition occurred at Aquarius, the only underwater marine lab. It's located about nine miles off the coast of Florida Keys. So, Fabien, welcome to the show. Hello, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad you could join us. So, start, bring us visually down there, where you were at Mission 31. Uh, Mission 31, yes. Well, for those who are uh, not initiated in underwater living, uh, imagine a a city under the sea, a little bit like Atlantis, I guess, or uh, maybe more for those urbanites, uh, you could imagine uh, your apartment in New York City being located at the bottom of the sea with your garden being a coral garden. Uh, that's essentially <clears throat> Sounds where, nice. where we were based. Yeah, it, it really is amazing. And it, I'm not trying to sing the SpongeBob song, although that certainly is uh, something akin to it. But um, 
Essentially, uh, an undersea habitat is something that my grandfather pioneered. Uh, he built a series of underwater habitats and uh, for mission or for uh, purpose to experiment with the possibilities of human beings living and working underwater for extended periods of time. So, uh, so at the heart, it's really a science mission because absolutely. a lot of the science would need to be done for prolonged periods, not like, oh, how cool, maybe we'll live underwater someday. Well, it's, it really is uh, not at all just for the uh, exploits of breaking records or anything like that. The, there's a very pragmatic reason for living at the planet's final frontier, and that gives us the luxury of time and allows us to explore that frontier uh, in an unprecedented way that you just can't do from an ROV or a submersible where you're segregated from the environment or from scuba diving from the surface where you have a very limited amount of time. And that time is very precious, and it gives us an unbelievable uh, view of what happens underwater and with these underwater natural cities when we're not around. So what's an example, uh, what's an example oh, of uh, something that you couldn't have done that you did and you discovered in this recent mission in June? Oh, my gosh. Uh, the list goes on and on, but for... Uh, just as a general rule, for 31 days, we were doing all sorts of scientific data gathering. And that gave us, um, uh, in, in our particular mission, we gathered three years worth of, of science and data in 31 days because we were living at the bottom of the sea. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I brought scientists with me on my team to, uh, to help me do this. Uh, I'm a storyteller, uh, as was uh, as is my father and as was my grandfather um, and, and the rest of the family. The, the idea really is to, uh, for Mission 31, to invite the world in for the first time ever on a Cousteau expedition in real time, and we were able to show what we were doing and share with the general public and with the, the youth out there, the, the kids out there who want to learn more about the ocean. Because you had 24-7 uh, we broadcast, right? Well, that was, for me, the most special part and something that I'm sure my grandfather was dreaming of doing in his day uh, is to be able to uh, literally tweet, Facebook, uh, Skype in the classroom, uh, live from the bottom of the sea, and that's exactly what we did because we had Wi-Fi from underwater in this world's only undersea marine laboratory called Aquarius. So I know you're the storyteller, so what story in a snapshot would you tell of the scientific discoveries or even the data that you've all gathered there? Well, the... the the magic of storytelling is not to bash people over the heads with the bad news or to cram them full of science in five minutes or less. It's to let them learn more about what you're doing and have them fall in love. And if, they, if there's hope and love, you can then get them to have a sense of ownership. Then from there, they can protect what they love. And, and all this within a wrapper, of course, of education and science. But it really is about the adventure of ocean exploration, which, as I'm sure you probably know, we've explored less than 5% of our oceans to date, which allows us a lot of material uh, to discover and be able to share with the general public. Uh, a very short story would be one that I had a, a very uh, intimate moment with uh, some, some animals called Goliath Rupert. And I had a chance to sit at the bottom on a sandy uh, platform, uh, staring directly into a six-foot 
Goliath grouper, which is an endangered species, where he was resting uh, literally out in the open, which I've never seen before, and they do, uh, but they do very rarely, and uh, staring within six inches of this animal that was much larger than I was uh, at each other for over 30 minutes, and I was able to take snapshots and video and everything else. Uh, and that was just a very special, intimate moment. One of the the things that I love doing, though, is filmmaking and being able to bring back imagery that we've never seen before. And one of the things we were able to do is the by using a, a technology that's just a, coming out right now called an edgetronic camera uh, that shoots up to 20,000 frames a second. So literally oh you can see things that the naked eye doesn't see. Uh, I, I mean, I tried to keep my eyeballs open looking at a mantis shrimp trying to eat a goby. And it's so fast. The, the mantis shrimp strike is so fast and so powerful. It's equivalent to a 22 caliber bullet. And yet, <laughs> even with my eyes wide open, I could not see how quickly it was trying to snap up that goby. Yet with that camera, I was able to show, and you can see it on the mission-31.com website, the goby just narrowly escaping death from the clutches of the mantis shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> That's a gripper. I can see the SpongeBob theme right now. So we just have about 30 seconds. I just want to know, since this is part of a The Ocean Is Us series for inland Coloradans like myself, what message do you want folks here to really take home? Well, water and ocean are the circulatory system of all life on this planet, whether we know it or not. And what we do to the oceans, we do to ourselves. Uh, so if you throw pollution in there, it ends up in our plates. It ends up in our very own circulatory systems. We really uh, do need to think about the oceans when we think about ocean exploration and, uh, and stewardship of our planet. Whether we live on the ocean front or a thousand miles away, it affects us all in some very intimate ways. Well, thank you so much, Fabienne, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Aquanut and filmmaker Fabienne Cousteau. You can find out more, as he mentioned, about his 30, Mission 31 adventures at www.mission-31.com. You can also learn much more about these kind of issues at Colorado Ocean Coalition here in Boulder. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker, and I produced and engineered this week's show. Additional contributions by Jane Palmer and Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. We had additional music from Muddy Waters. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. This program is supported by you, the KGNU listener member, and by Independent Power Systems, a locally owned solar electric integrator located in North Boulder and serving the entire front range. Independent Power Systems offers electric system design and installation for your home, business, or commercial building project. Independent Power Systems is a SunPower Elite dealer and offers the SunPower Solar Lease. Details can be found at solarips.com or by calling 303-443-0115.